Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our year of reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Posey, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Lucy Allen, journalist, broadcaster, and now author of The Foghorn's Lament, one of the strangest, most haunting and oddly moving nonfiction books to be published this year. It's a book about foghorns, of course, but it's also about coastlines, culture and communities. It's an investigation into obsession, a miscellany of maritime mythology and an inquiry into what makes one person's noise another person's music. And to a coastal boy who's been locked down in Paris since last March, who hasn't seen the horizon in more than a year and a half, it was not only an enormous pleasure to read, but also a balm. Jennifer, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. My pleasure. Thank you for the book. And I, I, I mean that very sincerely when I say it was a balm, like the sort of um, we'll probably get into this because, of course, you uh, were not born and by the coast and didn't, didn't grow up there. And yet I think there there is something incredibly powerful about the coastline, about being able to see the horizon. Um, and particularly after the last yeah, year and a half of not being able to, it's something I've really come, really come to appreciate. Yeah, I definitely felt that like most of the writing of the book, I was living in uh, Southend-on-Sea in Essex and realising what it means to live near a coastline and not just visit one where you see all the changes happening in that landscape. And so, and so that sort of was a lot, a lot of this book was written when you were living by the sea then? Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, I moved out to Southend-on-Sea probably around the same time I started the research for the book, which started out as a, um, as a PhD, not, obviously not mm. a very useful mm. one. Uh, <laughs> one. Um, but living there really taught me a lot about weather and the coasts and coastlines as places and also about seaside towns in the UK especially. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I didn't ever have before um, in terms of seeing how things change hour to hour and day by day and actually sitting somewhere and watching the tide go in and out day after day mm. is a different experience of those places, which it sounds like what you grew up with. Yeah, and I think also like with the tides, particularly watching the different sort of uh, life that a high tide or a low tide brings out, and I don't mean just maritime life, but the sort of the the human life around it. Yeah. Um, one thing. Uh, so I. Um, so you, where, where are you at the moment when we're recording this? Because a part of me hopes you're going to say the the office, which you you write a little bit about in the book. Yeah, no, sadly, uh, that office uh, that office still exists. Actually, they were I heard they were looking for a new member a while back. Mm. But um, I actually in lockdown moved uh, reluctantly back into London. Um, ah. 
uh, for various reasons uh, to do with uh, like moving in with my partner who was uh, allowed to come back from Sweden and none of my friends, um, all of my friends refusing to leave London and also kind of missing the sort of cultural obsessions mm-hmm. to do with music and film and stuff like that and wanting to see more of it, which there wasn't very much at the seaside. Mm-hmm. I think um, I should probably let our listeners know why I seem particularly interested in the office that you're, <laughs> did you talk about in the book? And, and one of the reasons from my perspective is that you um, you say that it was the same estuarial landscape that opens Heart of Darkness, um, which I think for me, it's one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, but also I think one of the greatest openings in literature, the way that Conrad evokes the estuary and evokes the coastline. Yeah, that space uh, that... That's that specific space of the estuary is uh, something that really taught me a lot about um, coastlines, not as idyllic places as well. Like the estuary is a mix of all these different things and there's a lot of industry on it. There's a lot of history on it. There's a lot of um, stuff that doesn't work anymore. And, there, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of ecology as well. And um, sort of the way that those places developed along the coast in Essex is really fascinating to me. And then always being able to see Kent across the water, apart from when it's foggy, um, you're sort of connected to somewhere else, but far away from it. And and mm. the way that that affects the kind of general mood of a place. And, and that even comes across in Conrad, this idea of you're not far away, but you're not close to mm-hmm. London and you're not, but you're not at the sea yet. And it's kind of this uh, middle space. Like I'm really trying hard not to say liminal here because I don't uh-huh. think it's a liminal space. But it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard to say anything like very definite about it. It's, it's full of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Although that, 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 that sense of liminality is something which is kind of um, very important uh, to your book. Um because I, I think that there's been a lot of writing um, about the sea in recent years. I have the impression, like lots of lots of books about the sea. I mean, some of the um, listeners to the podcast will, podcast will have probably heard uh, Philip Hoare talking here um, several times. And you know, Philip writes wonderfully about whales and about sea, the sea and the deep sea, and the sort of the space is sort of quite far away from the coastlines. But one thing I realised while reading your book was that it's actually very rare to find people writing about this about the coast about the shoreline about this space which is sort of not quite land not quite water um and it's and it struck me that it's sort of um in a way it must have been quite a quite a hard pitch to uh, <laughs> to 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 a publisher and to readers to kind of not only to sort of that it's sort of you're writing in a space which is perhaps neither one thing nor another but you're also writing about this object this this thing which people maybe people will have heard of but maybe won't have any particular sort of emotional connection to if they've if they never had any direct experience of it so would all of that to say would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight into how this interest in foghorns came about yeah i mean the root of my interest is from uh is because of my background in music writing and journalism and broadcasting and stuff like that and my specialism in those areas has always been writing about kind of experimental or underground recordings like uh the avant-garde a lot of stuff to do with field recording and things like that so i was already kind of listening to things uh not particularly looking for obviously like rhythm or melody and 
Like mm -hmm. I love that, but I don't require it in things that I love. So um, when I, I was actually um, reviewing a record with a big French horn in it and I was writing a review and sort of said, oh, this sounds like a foghorn and then kind of went back to fact check myself and was thinking, oh, actually, what does a foghorn sound like? Have I got that right? Um, and then just ended up in this complete YouTube hole. And I had all these questions about this sound. Like, I am always very curious about where sound comes from. It's very sort of transient thing, but it fixes so much in our memories as it, in mm -hmm. terms of our biographical uh, sense of ourselves is, is like peppered with music and sound. Um, so I sort of started asking these questions uh, like, whose idea was this sound? Because it's an enormous... Mm -hmm we're familiar with it as a part of maybe sound effects as bits of film it crops up in literature and various bits of music but actually and it's kind of culturally familiar particularly in Europe actually and uh, North America mm. um but then when you think about what it is it's this absolutely massive horn on a coastline <laughs> there's nothing else like that and once I once I'd been like oh god I just assumed what this thing is so whose idea is this? It's ridiculous. It's like completely absurd. And something about the absurdity of its scale and its power, um, but also the mm. profundity of it being in this quite um, quite dramatic landscape, whether it's on a cliff top or a beach or a, you know, um, a sort of shingle spit, really appealed to me like those. Uh, and I think what you were saying about liminality before, the thing that I'll... I loved writing about the coasts is you're not really able to say anything fixed about them. Everything requires a caveat or mm -hmm. a point and, and the capacity of these spaces to be uh, two things at once. And, and a coast can be two things at once. It is, uh, you know, it's, and a foghorn can be two things at once. It's both about life and death. And uh, so is the coast. Like it's about life and death mm -hmm. and it's about movement and stasis. It's where the fixed land meets the moving sea. And so I still can't quite shake that really compelling way in which not just the sound of the foghorn, but the landscape in which it's found uh, can sort of contain multitudes, as it were, and and, op and contain opposites. Hmm. And that is interesting what you say about the um, the way that sounds fix in our memories, because. Um, I mean, there are so many different ways that sort of memories can be evoked. It might be by a taste. It might be by, from a smell. It might be, you know, some sort of visual stimulus. Um, but all of those things, to an extent, can be kind of recreated and fixed physically, I guess, whether that be in a, in a picture, whether it be, in, you know, I don't know, recreating the you know, grandmother's old recipe or something like that. But sound. But I think particularly a sound like a foghorn, even though, of course, there are ways of recording sound. One impression I got from the book was because of the the massiveness of the foghorn, the sound it, the foghorn produces, it's kind of, you know, like on the YouTube videos you were watching, it's kind of, it's it's one of those sounds which sort of, it can, you can have a representation of it, but you're never going to really get a sense of what a foghorn is and the sheer force of it until you're, until you actually hear one. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that um, the notion of context for um, the foghorn and then how that trickles down to the notion of context for all our sensory experiences actually became a very sort of powerful uh, backbone to the way I was thinking about things and mm -hmm. the way I was writing about things. 
um, and really trying to try not to be prescriptive because what what I realised when even writing about a sound like the foghorn, which at first glance seems fairly esoteric, um, is that everyone has their own experiences of it. Like some of the keepers mm. that I talked to, they hated it. And I'm there, yeah. like, oh my God, I love this sound. It's so evocative and it's this and it's that. And um, and lots of people, when I've talked about this project, like it's had a lot of tangents over the years um, and performances and things like that. And one of the things that has really that I didn't expect was uh, people coming up after and saying and sharing their memories and people feeling really compelled to say, this is, let me tell you about my foghorn or like the one that Mm -hmm. I know from my holidays or from my childhood. And, you know, you were talking about um, living on the coast and things and that it took you back. and, And that is my, I mean, that is this beautiful, amazing extra gift from the book, like this, how powerful people's memories are and how when you give them something then they then they give you these memories back it's incredible Mm. and and so was your um your first experience hearing a foghorn for real in real life so to speak the uh the performance of the the foghorn requiem at at suta point um i don't think it was actually i think just before that around that same time the timelines have got a little bit muddled, but I'm pretty sure around that time I also went to visit Nash Point in Wales, uh-huh. um, which is a really amazing, like really meaty sounding foghorn. <laughs> it's brilliant, but which is sadly silent now. They've switched it off for reasons that I don't quite understand. Um, but it's the. I'm just going to interrupt you there just for a yeah. second, just because I wish our audio listeners could see your face while you were describing <laughs> the meatiness of that foghorn, because it's kind of the enthusiasm and the kind yeah. of the. Uh, yeah, the, the, you're, you're, it's almost like you're hearing the sound again as you talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, There's like so many textures to them. And then when I started really digging into like listening to lots of different ones all at the same time, you're like, oh, wow, these are all different. I suppose it's like uh, people's voices. You think, well, I know what voices sound like. It's deeper, it's higher, it's this. But when you listen to them, they're all completely different. And that's mm-hmm. by virtue of the machinery in a lot of ways. But the Nash Point one, yeah, is really good and it's um, in the film The Lighthouse with uh, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Mm. The massive horn that sounds throughout that is the the root of that recording, which has had many things like done to it and augmented. But that general like timbre and movement of it is the Nash Point horn, I think. Interesting. But the the the, the, the book opens and indeed closes with um, a Suter Point and the and the Foghorn uh, Requiem there, which so it it. it, it, it we get the impression as readers that there is there was something um, formative about that experience, or transformative, perhaps would be a better a better word. Like, um, so could you just describe a little bit for people who haven't read the book what that performance was and, and the effect it had on you? Yeah, um, the uh, you're completely right. That was the transformative moment when everything changed. So prior to that, I'd just been on my own little sort of reading listening to stuff on YouTube and kind of just a, an interest in an esoteric sound but at that mm-hmm. performance was when the ideas around it the context for it it's it's resonances and and meanings or multiple meanings sort of spread out in front of me and were reflected in this crowd and I realized that actually there was there was much more to think about and talk about and that this thing was a symbol of something much bigger than I'd really considered, actually. 
foghorn sounds. Its abrupt and terrific interjection comes from two rectangular black mouths, a colossal metallic holler that is stupefyingly loud. It floods my ears and shakes my guts. I am overwhelmed. I freeze. Tiny hairs rise on my covered arms. Its moaning blast ends in a gruff grunt that jolts me from my stupor. One eternal second of absolute and total silence follows and the crowd around me erupts in the type of giddy laughter reserved for moments of awe. It is true oral obliteration. In June of 2013, I drove from London to the northeast with friends to see Foghorn Requiem, a vast open-air performance that assembled three brass bands with a total of 65 players on the cliffs at Suter Point Lighthouse in South Shields. They were joined by a motley flotilla of over 50 ships out in the North Sea that included a ferry and fishing boats, sailboats and lifeboats, catches, yachts and tugs. At its centre was the almighty Suter Point Foghorn, which sounded from the middle of the crowd over the heads of the brass players and out to the ships on the horizon. A voice of compressed air from hulking diesel engine lungs. It was a bright and blustery day, chilly under a blue sky. The crowd had amassed around the whitewashed lighthouse and foghorn building, square like an electricity substation, with two outside trumpets on top, gaping like black doorways tapering into two narrow necks. There were families with children on shoulders, people huddling in bright waterproofs around flasks of tea, couples with dogs, grandparents perched on camping chairs, kids lifted up to sit on the boundary wall of the lighthouse compound and people like me, underdressed in jeans and light jacket for the brisk 11-degree summer day in South Shields. We waited, shivering and harried by the wind, for the performance to begin. As the brass players filed in, a quiet descended. This reverent silence was broken by one high, clear note, sounded by a single trumpet player from the top of the lighthouse. Then the brass began, and a sequence of sombre phrases was lifted by the breeze, the notes carried out to sea. The ships and boats replied in harmony, tuned to the notes of the brass, as if they were an echo from the vast landscape itself. Their answers came in staggered and idiosyncratic voices, the ferry loud and adenoidal, the small ships pinched and whinnying. Their conversation, between brass and boat, colliery and maritime, filled the blue-grey seascape from the cliffs we stood on all the way to the distant horizon, a mournful exchange on a scale much bigger than ourselves, as if these industries had been given voices with which to compare misfortunes. And then, into this lament, the foghorn bellowed, a sound to call through fog and heavy weather that could reach 20 miles across the sea. Over the heads of the audience, it bellowed again. It sandblasted my ears with a force and power that diminished the brass and ships, those formerly huge sounds now mice to an elephant. Each time it sang, I felt more excited, more alive. It was shaped by the cliffs and water, from the first giddy interjection to a noise that gathered emotional power as it traversed the landscape. The final note of the requiem let the air drain from the foghorn's tanks, and as the pressure faded, the hardness of the sound was lost. It hummed, sang, in broken-throated keening, and when it no longer had the strength for that, it stuttered and wheezed until its last breath hissed 
like air from a punctured balloon. When silence settled, I stood frozen to the spot. A lump rose in my throat and my eyes watered. I looked around and saw tears and glazed looks in the faces of the crowd. Something had departed and we were alone. In that last gasp, the foghorn had articulated not just its own death, but the death of an industry and all that was left behind. This was industrial music and it meant something only not in the way I was used to. So let's, um, let's talk about the, the invention um, of, of the foghorn, because, of course, we, we're talking about the foghorn, but there were before the horn, there were various types of signals. There were uh, bells, there were guns um, that, that were used to kind of to warn, uh, to warn ships of, 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 of fog, to warn them of danger. But this, this very particular sound could you give us a sort of a a little bit of a summary of the history that you give in the book about uh about when it first originated yeah so um yeah as i mentioned i went looking for you know whose idea with this sound it's completely absurd um and the kind of origin story that stuck which i think uh i wouldn't want to be uh, attach myself 100% to but the story <laughs> that stuck is that um a guy called uh, robert Fowlis, uh who was a scottish widower who moved to Canada and remarried Um, and he was uh, in St John in Canada and he was walking along the shore in fog in the evening and he heard his daughter's piano playing drifting across the shore towards him Um, and he noticed that the low notes carried better through the fog than the high notes and this inspired him to build a foghorn and this story was one that I heard or read like some lighthouse keepers told it me I read it in you know encyclopedias and every sort of reference book that had anything on foghorns said this guy invented it in 1853 but if you think about that story and it took me a while to really come around to this when if you think about that story there's this massive hole in it like what why would a piano make you think of a foghorn and and by that what he did was Mm. hook up um a steam a steam engine, a steam-powered mechanism to a to a horn that would be a lot, lot louder, mm-hmm. basically, than everything that was around at that time. And he was on a coastline with quite a lot of shipwrecks kind of around the Labrador coast um, and Newfoundland, like um, St. John, kind of that, that Canadian coastline there. Um, there was a lot mm-hmm. of shipwrecks with people uh, migrating across from Europe. Um, so I kind of started digging into what had happened there and there wasn't very much in the way of answers but it it really becomes this kind of fable or allegory or something and it contains the Mm. because he was a widower and he'd kind of uh, lost his first wife moved over to Canada remarried and so there's this kind of grief in his story that and he died in poverty because he never patented the foghorn and this kind of melancholy is tied up in that story, really. It felt more like folklore to me when I really mm. started to think about it than actually a factual story that meant anything. You know, there's no diaries that I, that I could find any evidence of. There's no account of this day or this story. And I, I really don't know where it came from. It, it's quite possible that buried mm. in some very obscure archives somewhere, there is like a letter from this guy, but I was never able to find it. Um so with that, I kind of almost like it better. But in a way, that seems, yeah, I mean, that, that seems also to fit with so much around the foghorn um, 
the impression we get from the book. It's like it, it's 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 at once a kind of a a machine and a very kind of functional machine. Although we'll get on maybe later to talk about quite how how well it actually works. But you know, and it's very sort of you know very much connected to to, to industry and trade and marriage. and yet on the other side, it seems to have inspired this story of this, we might call it its kind of origin myth, and also a kind of a whole range of kind of folklore and urban mythology, whether that's to do with, um, you know, comparisons to uh, uh, ancient mythology, or whether that's to do with uh, sort of, I think it's sort of a Sheffield sound system, getting hold of one of these horns and using it um, using it as part of their performance. Like, what, what is it, do you think, about this kind of, this very sort of functional object that makes it sort of so prone to generating these kind of stories of this folklore? Uh, well, I think there's lots of things going on there. That was one of the things I was trying to unpick, really. I think there is something inherent to sound as like... Um, uh, sound is a very transient thing and as soon as you've heard a sound it's already in the past because it's mm-hmm. left its place of origin and is in your ears and it's disappeared it doesn't exist anymore as soon as you hear it so in a way all sounds are ghosts like by their very mm-hmm. physical nature and I find that idea quite compelling and quite relevant to the idea of the foghorn as especially when we think about it now as something that when we hear it, we're hearing something from the past. It doesn't really function anymore, which mm-hmm. we m- might talk about in a little bit. But then there's also, I think there is something about this, uh, the absurdity of the machinery, the scale of the machinery. You know, these are uh, the ones on the coast, like Suter Point, kind of have the engine rooms would be like two massive uh, Victorian engines um, that kind of fill massive compressed air tanks. And then you've got this gigantic trumpet on a, usually on a building that looks like a kind of electricity substation or something. Like it's a very strange piece of architecture. It's very alien on on, on the coastline. And but we kind of take them for granted. You know, lighthouses are one thing, but foghorns are something else entirely. So I think the and because it is this light, there's nothing else like it. And it is very strange. And they're actually not as old as lighthouses by hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. So mm-hmm. depending on how you count what you count a lighthouse as um so that idea of this kind of like thing that drops in and makes this colossal sound it is like a monster and it sounds like a monster and people when they got installed in places like in scotland and stuff complained about them as monsters and bulls and beasts and so Mm. i think it's part of it is uh You know, I really believe in folklore as a kind of way of understanding the world around us as well. And and a way of also adding poetics back into reality. Um, And I think the foghorn was just like perfectly Mm. placed in terms of its power, its sound, its architecture, the look of it, um, its absurdity, uh, perfectly placed to kind of be this new container or something for sort of industrial folklore. And that became something that... um, I kind of latched mm. onto this idea of lots of folklore being pre-industrial and then, okay, so what is, and now we're kind of coming out of that historical period. What does the, what does the folklore of that kind of 19th century, 18th century industrial revolution look like? Mm. And I guess, I guess the other thing as well, um, which you talk about quite a bit in the book 
is the kind of, I guess, the medium that the foghorn works with, like fog itself. Because obviously, you know, fog has been part of, uh, uh, as you go into sort of like part of myths dating back to ancient times, but also in uh, Victorian times and sort of around the time when the foghorn was invented, very much in the sort of the stories of uh, people like Edgar Allan Poe. There's this kind of, you know, fog has this very sort of, um, sort of, looming very sort of uh, mysterious presence as well yeah and a very indefinite one <laughs> that was the, mm. there's something very foggy about fog I ended up in this uh, <laughs> getting my tying myself in knots trying to write that chapter just ending up writing this like sentence one fear like fog is fog is fog like <laughs> it's a metaphor it's a literal thing and it's all these things at once and and I do love that about it and I think it completely affects the way we hear the foghorn and what it means because you've got this complete sensory flipping around of your usual mm. experience of the world you know if you have normal uh, vision if you're not blind and you your uh, hearing's normal and not impaired the fog and the foghorn is just this complete like inversion of the world around you in in this instant that can come on in 10 minutes in some places mm. like san francisco and there's something completely miraculous and magical about that, you know, and, and in that moment, then you are in a, a piece of like mythology or folklore, like everything's changed and you, there's nothing you can do about it. I, I love it. <laughs> I like it when you say that fog is fog is fog, because yeah. I really enjoyed that, as you said, that that attempt to to define it, like the difference between a fog and a mist, for example, which which, if I understood correctly, it's to do with our perception of it, right? It's to do with the sort of the distance uh, the observer can see through it or something like that? Yeah, so the Met Office uh, definition of fog has is really about how far you can see um, mm. not about the sort of consistency of the fog itself as such. Um, and there's something kind of, I mean, dealing with the sort of Met Office stats and uh, on what fog is and things like that, when you get something like that, it's kind of a gift, actually, <laughs> as a writer. Like, Thank you. This is exactly what I needed. Because as soon as you... You have to have an observer at the heart of fog, really, for that. Uh-huh. And there's some... Philosophically, there's something um, very interesting about a weather state which requires an observer mm. to verify it. It makes me think um, that there seems to be a kind of uh, repeatedly, and this comes back to this idea of the absurdity of the foghorn, I guess, that it's sort of with these kind of this this, this concept of fog and the, the kind of the folklore that surrounds the, the foghorn itself, it seems that this was a device in a way designed to overcome fog in some way, to sort of neutralise fog, to allow ships to to travel safely when this sort of this mysterious uh meteorological presence was there and yet in a funny kind of way the foghorn has become part of the fog's mythology rather than overcoming it like it's sort of it's it's got involved with it it's shaped it but it hasn't actually it sort of set itself up in opposition to the fog and then in a sense became one with it yeah yeah mostly because it didn't work well it kind of did work but um (laughs) it was more about power than it than success i suppose than it's functioning um but yeah this yeah the the, i was thinking a little bit about the way you uh make a landscape sound foggy 
if you mm -hmm. are if it's just a purely sound based enterprise and the way you might do that is with with a foghorn so mm -hmm. yeah it becomes representative of the fog a symbol of it and a and a sort of harbinger of it as well it's funny so you said like uh, when when when, when uh you're beginning to answer that question you said it's because they don't work yeah. and that and that was one thing that again sort of just increased the charm of the foghorn to me was this thing not only you know you could imagine something you know an invention something being invented that then doesn't particularly work fine happens all the time but something that is invented is invented doesn't particularly work and yet then gets adopted around the world as the kind of the what is it was it just sort of like the the best option of yeah uh, available or was it sort of like, yeah or, or was yeah, there some yeah. sort of storytelling involved in getting the foghorn accepted yeah I think there was um I mean I think with all of this when we're talking about the rollout of like a piece of technology around the world I definitely think there's not one easy answer and it's a much more complex mm. tangle of things which again is like compelling and makes this thing foggy which is very convenient as a writer um <laughs> but, but the but the it was really, um, there were a lot of shipwrecks at that time and, and it seemed like there was quite a lot of media pressure about it. Not media pressure in the way we think of it now, but there was a lot of coverage and calls to do something about it. Um, and uh, finding a massive horn, um, once they realised that sound on coasts is a very unpredictable um, thing to have to uh, make sure somebody is getting one mile away, two miles away, 10 miles away. Um, you really can't do anything about that because of the nature of the environment. Like the whole thing conspires against you. If you've got cliffs, the sound's going to bounce around. If it's windy, the sound's going to get mm. blown just completely out of earshot, very, very close to the cliffs. Like if you have all of the things about the water, the cliffs, the sand, the weather, the wind um, are conspiring to make that sound not travel or travel mm -hmm. weirdly or travel in these really hallucinatory ways. So um, the once they realised that with John Tyndall, and they realised it in John Tyndall's tests a lot, like the, the all the weird things that could happen and the lack of controls for it. Um, and that's when it becomes this battle against nature, like this a sound that's got to, you know, cut through this fog in really unpredictable and unmanageable scenarios, uh, they just decided to use the loudest thing they could find. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and there were other loud things, but um, they kind of abandoned, there was a lot of guns being used around the coast at the mm -hmm. time and they abandoned guns um, because you can kind of miss the retort of a gun over the other sounds on a boat. Um mm -hmm. There was some whistles. Uh, There's quite a lot of whistles used in North America, actually. But um, and they're a bit snotty about them in the UK, being saying, "Oh, they didn't work very well." Um, and uh, and obviously, lots of places. When we talk about the rollout of this technology, it wasn't just like all of a sudden everyone gets an update and gets a foghorn. It was a very slow rollout of things, and only certain places could even get them because it depended on a lot of things to do with access and uh, whether you had the space to build a whole engine room on the cliff top, which obviously rock stations out at sea couldn't do that. So they carried on using explosive charges into the 1970s. Mm. So as always, it's this thing which um, at first I found it incredibly frustrating writing the book, like where every time you try and find an answer to something, all you find is a series of books or, well, 
perhaps. <laughs> no, this like constant constant tangents and constant caveats to any kind of answers you're trying to find mm. as a researcher. But um, then I kind of realised that was the whole point of this project, you know, that history isn't like that. And you can't tell a story about a sound that's a linear thing that goes from A to B because that's not mm-hmm. how sounds exist either in the moment or even, or throughout history. Um, yeah, and that mm-hmm. became a big realization, I think. Just as a just as a quick aside, you've, you've cast me into doubt now because um, talking about the use of foghorns, but then also mentioning whistles, and now I'm just thinking of that line from the Van Morrison song "Into the Mystic," where he talks about I think it's the foghorn whistle blows. The, yeah. so I, I I had one idea of what the sound was. Now now is it a foghorn? Is it a whistle? Now it's sort of left me slightly uh, slightly perplexed. Yeah, so the technical definition of a foghorn is the ones we're talking about, which is these big engine-driven horns on a coastline, at light, usually at lighthouses, whereas, a, a, you know, all ships have a horn to use in fog as well. So in sort of mm-hmm. common usage, people often call a foghorn, a ship's horn, a foghorn, and fog's horn, you know, there's a lot of slippage. So even in that, there's, you know, you can say what you talk, I can define to you what I'm talking about, but that won't necessarily help you when going to look for references to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also um, talking about the, sort of the, the place of the foghorn in history. Um, like you said, sort of it depended on, for example, if the, the coastline could accommodate it. Um, but there does also seem to be, um, you write about sort of other factors which may have sort of uh, influenced the, the positioning of foghorns and the... Um, uh, the way in which they were used. I mean, there's a moment, for example, you talk about sort of noise as a as a class issue. Mm. Um, and obviously, particularly because the Foghorn was born out of the Industrial Revolution, it's a sort of a steam-powered machine. There's very much this connection to the sort of um, the the industrial sort of heartlands. I think, I suppose I'm thinking specifically of the sort of the British industrial heartlands. Mm. And yet the places where these hordes would have been located i suppose in a way were places of, by and large until this point would have been spared the noise of um well, of the industrial revolution yeah in some ways yes and in some ways no because for example the south foreland where tyndall was doing his foghorn experiments that's just kind of a bit round the bend from dover which would have been you right. know really busy town with a lot of factories mm-hmm. and things like that um, whereas in other places, uh, so up on, you know, if you're talking about perhaps like uh, Fair Isle um, up in Scotland, then that's going to be a place where they've had a lighthouse, but there's, you know, there's no other noise like a foghorn on that island. Um, mm-hmm. So it really was, uh, and that kind of speaks to the way that we can't really say anything definite about coastlines either, as we were saying right at the beginning, um, that we all have an idea of what perhaps a seaside looks like. And that's one type of coastline. Mm-hmm. You get, you know, kind of cliff tops and then there's very, very urban coastlines and um, ones that are very industrial even. Um, and the yeah. Falcon was in all of these different places. And even the urban places, though, um, so, for example, on the Clyde, people did complain about the sound of it, even even though they were used to, like, ships rattling around the bend, tooting their horns, they uh, the foghorns fog were still uh, loud enough to be disruptive for people. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and that feeds into um, a discussion you have in the book about what makes a sound a noise in a way. Like it's sort of, um, I mean, I, I suppose just thinking about it, is it, noise as a word is ge- it generally has negative connotations. I mean, I know it's sort of sort of which musical I genres. That's been the objector. Which I, yeah. say again, sorry. I send you as the objector the negative, like automatic negative connotations of noise. Obviously, because I think you have some musical or sonic merit often and it's what I'm looking for but um there's a huge amount of literature on noise and trying to work out what noise is and exploring its um meanings or purpose or manifestations but actually um feel uh, quite principled about the idea that um there, this idea of there being a binary between noise and music is um, mm. is a completely corrupt notion, um, intellectually speaking. Like what you're trying to mm-hmm. do there is draw a definition between what is art and what is not art or what is beautiful and right. what is not beautiful. There's something deeply subjective about it that makes any sort of discussion which tries to um, uh, prescribe one or the other actually philosophically redundant, I think. Um, so noise as... Noise is very much, and I think I say this in the book, like noise is in the ear of the beholder, really. Like what is noise mm-hmm. to me is not noise to you and what is noise to you might not be noise to me. And I think I did the vice versa, but vice versa. Um, <laughs> what is a, <laughs> yeah, but you get the idea, like the, um, there is no um, objective or platonic noise and there is, neither is there mm-hmm. a music. Um, is, I hold quite strongly to that as a principle. And that definitely sort of seems to be borne out in the the people that you uh, you speak to about the foghorn specifically, like the the way in which they they engage with the the sound of the foghorn is um, you say so much to do with the the context in which they uh, lived with it, or perhaps haven't lived with it, or the context which they maybe lived with it in the past and no longer live with it. Now, and it's, it was really fascinating to me to see the sort of um, people, for example, you talked about the lighthouse keepers who who hated it, but then other people whose foghorns have been sort of decommissioned, missing it like like mad, like it's almost like a part of their um, a part of their the landscape of their lives had been removed. Mm, yeah, and was that something that you you mentioned when you first emailed me about your memories of the coast? Was there a foghorn near you? Uh, I don't think so. This is something I'm trying to I don't remember because there were definitely lighthouses along the, the Dorset coast. Mm. Um, but I was thinking about this, uh, having spent a, quite a few years ago now, so, um, about a month in San Francisco and not remembering hearing a foghorn at all if I stay there and, and you, you, you cross the Golden Gate Bridge on, on foot, which, which I did as well. And I, just, and I was just, I was trying to think like, was I... Because I, I do, I do also have, you know, one of my ears is kind of quite quite significantly deaf, but like, you know, not too deaf that I would not hear a foghorn. And I, I was just trying to unpick, like, did I, was it there? And I just kind of accepted it as part of the background noise of the city. Was I there for a particularly fogless month and therefore didn't hear it? And just kind of reading the, the your experiences and also the different sort of memories uh, the people you talk to sort of evoke, it really... On a, on a personal level, left me with like lots of questions about sort of how how I had processed and how I had remembered sound. Yeah, definitely. I think that idea 
of getting used to a sound is um, one that we are all enacting every day. You know, we tune in, we tune out, loads of different things, you know. Um, there are things that stick for reasons that I don't, in my daily life that I don't know, that I always notice. I notice the bus coming to pick up the kid next door because it beeps its horn at the same time around eight every morning. But I, there are things that I completely tune out, like I'll tune out the radio in the kitchen, even when I'm making a cup of tea mm-hmm. or something. And I, and I think that um, uh, that was that's one of the nicest things people have mentioned about the book. A few people have said oh, it's made them think about what they're tuning in or into and what they're tuning out and, mm-hmm. and the sound that's in their daily lives. And, and I think that's a particularly... Um, uh, that's a particular thing to do when we're all stuck in the same four walls and in various forms of lockdown and mm-hmm. COVID and very much in uh, a local area where, whereas we might be traveling and encountering lots of new, exciting sounds. So, but it's a way of kind of retuning your relationship to the environment to kind of pay attention to that a bit more. And, and to understand also, like, like you said, like you can't remember if there were foghorns, you may, there may not have been any, but you may also have just tuned them out because once you're at a distance, they're quite gentle and soft. So they're not kind of um, a call to action every time you hear them, unless you're quite close. So that, uh, and and uh, I was sort of quite amazed that even the, some of the lighthouse keepers just tuned it out. Like your brain is such a curious, powerful thing. And those instances where you're able to sit and watch the TV in a lighthouse whilst tuning a foghorn out just must, <laughs> speaks to the power of it to me. Which also kind of um, raises a question of sort of preserving or sort of archiving the foghorn sound because, um, as, as as we said earlier, like it's 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 a difficult thing to to record in any sort of um, in any sort of any way that really does justice to the to the size of the yeah. sound. And then it's also something which the people who, in many ways, have the most experience with as we just discussed, probably in some way tuned it out. Yeah. Um, and that, which for me, as I was reading your book, I had this kind of, this sort of growing sense of kind of melancholy associated with the 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 foghorn itself. Like this idea that, I don't know, sort of buildings get sort of destroyed and then they're there and then they're not. And there seems to be kind of um, a sort of a definitive end and a definitive way to to remember them whereas this this foghorn as they're being sort of slowly decommissioned replaced with sort of other um pieces of more reliable technology i don't know it seems there seems to be something quite sort of yeah quite sad i guess in a way the Mm. way it sort of it seems to be fading from our lives rather than going out with a bang I guess yeah yeah no I agree and I think that has something to do with the the sadness around that has something to do with the scale of it as well like we're Mm -hmm. talking about a huge huge sound and the idea that something so kind of muscular and robust could kind of fade away without us really noticing very much Um, and we just have these echoes left in sort of film and music is uh is a strange and and sad idea and you you start to think about oh what else is going that I haven't noticed and Mm. I think there's lots of sounds that we're glad to see the back of and it's really good that we do lose sounds because otherwise we'd be living in this like onion skin of absolute chaos and not be able to navigate Mm. anything 
But there is something sad about it, a huge, huge sound like that. And and also because of what it represents, really. I, I do think that in the UK, uh, particularly, as well as elsewhere, but it, particularly in the UK, the places where some of the foghorns were located were obviously massive sites for uh, sort of the shipbuilding industry and other, other mm. industries like that, that then were in decline at the same time as the foghorn was in decline. So it kind of begins to carry the the weight of the of the industry and those workers and uh, sort of is almost not a collective voice but it's a it's a requiem for those industries the requiem at the start of the book not 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 even for the foghorn it's a requiem for the industries i think and those people who lost their livelihoods mm. and yeah i guess the kind of the the irony is that sort of uh, obviously, you meet quite a few um, enthusiasts, so people who sort of, you know, have created art with them or people who are sort of collecting the horns or people who are sort of restoring or at least sort of, um, sort of uh, maintaining the horns. But when on the few occasions when you actually kind of, for example, in San Francisco, I think it is, or moments where you kind of visit places where there's actually sort of uh, horns which are still operational, <laughs> The, the impression you get from the book is that the people you meet are sort of so utter. I don't say. I don't, don't want to say they're sort of. They're nonplussed. It's okay. They're non. Yeah, nonplussed. Okay. <laughs> like and completely, almost baffled by the fact that anybody might take any sort of interest in or have any sort of affection for yeah. the, this this object that they work with. Yeah, I think that was something that I found most prevalent in engineers actually, because they were mm. so interested in the um, machinery. Uh, the sort of cogs and moving parts and engines and things and mm. and you know the engineer that was showing me round on the Golden Gate Bridge was uh, kind of just a bit like I don't really know what's happening here what what's this girl here for <laughs> sound just on a you know it's just afternoon on a Tuesday or something and I was sat there like hello yes I'm really interested in this sound um but also then when I started to unpick it, it you know, that's funny. And, and I'm aware of the novelty and, and like absurdity of that too, of mm-hmm. trying to find these things and traveling these enormous distances to do it. But then when you hear one up close, you just understand why it's something that you should definitely search out. There's, it's such a huge sound. It's so metallic. It completely, mm. it's it's a sonic experience that I think everyone should have because it's not only in this incredible landscape, you know, a very dramatic landscape usually, even if it's a sunny day, um, but you feel mm. it in your whole body. You like you feel it in your guts and you can feel your sort of epiglottis vibrating at the back of your throat. And and it's, it's completely overwhelming. Um, and, in, and it has mm. this all these complex and multitudinous meanings to do with safety at sea and death at sea and civilization and loneliness all at the same time. And then when I saw so I would kind of feel a little bit uh, embarrassed when these engineers were sort of like, why, what do you want? Like, why why are you here? Uh, But then go back to my (laughs) research and be like, no, this is amazing. This sound is like nothing else. And I still couldn't find anything that quite matched up to it. Even by the end, I was like, I'm sure there's something else I can't think of. But I really, really never was able to. Um, And I think there is something about your day job and familiarity. And you can sometimes stop. Uh You know, it's quite stressful to have to see the absolute awe and wonder in something every single day of the week, isn't it? So uh, I can appreciate um, them not quite uh, loving it as much as me. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, we're gonna have to uh, finish in a few minutes. But one thing I'm I'm curious about, like just particularly hearing that sort of you talk so passionately about the uh, the Falcon just then is, you know, the 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 PhD is done, the the book is done. You know, you're you're going to be talking about it as uh, around publication. Is this is it is a Falcon something which is going to be a kind of an abiding interest for you? Are you is there I don't know, what, 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 might, what would we call this, like a, a horn head or something? Like, is it something which is now part of your life that you're going to, you know, are there, are there horns around the world that you think, okay, before I die, I've got to, to hear this horn? Well, I would like to hear them on the Golden Gate Bridge properly. And this maybe is a little bit of a spoiler for the book, but I went there and I didn't <laughs> either, uh, even though I saw the inside of the control room. So I would like to hear them in San Francisco properly and really sort of immerse myself in in a sort of foggy, foghorny San Francisco properly. Um, and then there's one on the coast of Tasmania called um, mm. Tasmania, yeah, Low Head, which is has got a really funny part, but a lot of the ones that I really would have liked to hear, like I would have liked to hear the lizard fully functioning because it was said to have this Mm -hmm. very strange and melancholy whale or something like that. And um, that one's no longer functioning at all. Um, So more my, the ones that I really want to hear are all in the past, unfortunately. They're all silent Mm -hmm. um, and probably not going to sound again. Um, But in answer to your question, do I think I'll... I don't think I'll manage to shake off foghorns. I think I have. I don't think there's another book on foghorns. I think I've done it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not going to be. I, I think you've done it for <laughs> foghorns generally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't think um, there'll be. A, I don't think I'll do much more writing about it because I want to write about uh-huh. things now, but um, definitely won't be um, putting this project to bed anytime soon. I don't think. Mm hmm. I think um, one thing I should say about the sort of the when you say there's not another book uh, on foghorns, it's sort of one thing I found talking to the booksellers, um, uh, Shakespeare and Company, telling them we were going to be recording this podcast, is watching sort of their uh, ideas about your book change from hearing like the initial premise, a book about foghorns. You get the slightly kind of baffled, sort of, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to be interested in this. <laughs> then the next step of sort of just me describing a little bit about what's going on in the book. And so you see their interest getting piqued. And then when they've read sort of a chapter or two, suddenly sort of like this sort yes. of this this passion developing. That's and it's a really kind of gratifying thing too. to see. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I guess it must be for a writer as well to sort well, of to that, that, that thing which is what I had for the whole time I was researching this. So I'd tell people in the pub or something or at parties, oh, I'm doing this thing about foghorns. And it would be exactly like you just described. They'd be like, this what? And you, there's that novelty aspect. And it is funny. And, you know, I'm not blind to that. And then you would say, well, it's a bit about this. and it's, But it's also kind of becomes about this. And then people's perceptions and ideas of it change. And then by the end of the conversation... They're like, oh, actually, I'd quite like to read that. Um, and and I used to sort of put myself up to that to make sure I was still on the right track with the book and had a hold of what was interesting about it and what was kind of profound about it as well. So I would do that in conversation as sort of training for myself to keep myself on track. And then I'm really glad that then the, <laughs> the writing of this book has meant that 
well, my agent had to have that experience many, many times. Then my editor had to have that experience many, many times. And now um, people like you and other people interviewing me have, have also been forced to like have these conversations where you go, fuck horns. Oh, well, actually, like it's about it's about life and death as well. Um, so I'm really mm. happy to hear that, that I'm like subjecting everyone to these awkward conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it is it's like testimony to the the quality of the book and the um, the sort of the as you say the profundity of the subject matter once you once you really dig into it. But it's like yeah, kudos to you for writing it. Kudos to White Rabbit for 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 publishing it because it is you know it's it's not an easy immediate sell. But you know I'm sure sort of after hearing you speak about it for the last forty five minutes, you know people listening to this podcast are like okay, you know that's for me and that's a sort of a very gratifying thing for a bookseller. But I'm sure for for a writer too yeah totally and and I've been surprised by the response already and really grateful for it and and also just for the belief people have in it as an idea like I believe in it completely but the fact that other people do as well is um is a gift it's been brilliant Mm -hmm. well Jennifer that is all we've got time for the Foghorn's Lament published by White Rabbit Books is available from the Shakespeare and Company bookstore uh Jennifer thank you so much for joining us and hope to speak to you again soon thank you very much for having me that was brilliant you have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me Adam Biles Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe and thanks again for listening.